Ah, the 70s. How many remember that song? Ah, yeah. Ah, yeah. Well, you all know the verses, don't you? I come straight out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And it talks about God's timing. God's perfect timing. That most of the time, we have a problem with. Because it seems like we're ready when he's not. It seems like it should have happened, and it hasn't yet. And so today, as we go through this wonderful Gospel of John, we're going to discover something about abiding in Christ. Now remember last week, chapter 15, we talked about abiding in Christ. As long as you're connected with Christ and you abide in that relationship, God will produce fruit through your life. However, there comes times when it seems like there's a separation. It seems like there is an absence of God. It seems like you are living your life in anticipation of something that should be happening, but it isn't. And so there's a whole different feel to this saying goodbye so that you can say hello again. Remember the context of this. Remember Jesus is walking with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember the context of a saying goodbye to someone you want to stay connected with. Um, uh, last week we talked about it's normal to say, let's keep in touch. Uh, which, is, which is the modern way of saying abide together. Let's abide. Uh, but this week, as you get right to the time, when you know the time is very close for saying goodbye, you need even more reassurance. You need to hear these words. We'll see each other again. We'll see each other again, which is exactly what Jesus is saying in this 16th chapter, beginning with the 16th verse. He says, a little while, and you no longer will behold me. And then again in a little while, you will see me. Now, some of his disciples said, therefore, to one another, what is this thing he is telling us, a little while? And by the way, this, this word in the Greek is micron. Um, it, it occurs seven times here. And for those of you who know about the symbolism of numbers in uh, Scripture, seven, seven is the perfect, complete number. And so it, it's, it's a way of, of saying in, liter, in literary style and content, God's timing is just exactly right, even with the little whiles that seem like big whiles. It says... Um, a little while you will not behold me again, and a little while you will see me, because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while, and we do not know what he's talking about. Now, they're trying to get the answer among themselves, because they've said just so many dumb things to Jesus, that they, before they resort to the last resort, they really want to try to clear this up among themselves. Well, let's talk about that for a little while. Let's talk about that that timing of God's. Let's talk about how many of you came here today, not by accident, but because God needed you to hear these very words. You know that thing that should have happened by now? It hadn't happened by now for my reason. Some of you, all of us, no, all of us, would love to live life as a series of short-term efforts, short-term bursts, um, even the great spiritual leaders among us um, sometimes think like that. 
uh, in, in uh, the last issue of Christianity Today, I think it was, somebody was writing about this subject, and they mentioned that Ruth Bell Graham, uh, Billy Graham's wife, uh, is just turning 80 this year. When she was a, when she was a girl, she was, she was raised, of course, by missionary parents in China. And when she was a girl, um, um, she came over to the United States for a college education, but she wanted to go back and be martyred for Christ in China, actually in Tibet, to be exact. And she saw herself living this very short life, burning up for Jesus Christ, being martyred for Christ. Well, she didn't get through Wheaton College without becoming engaged to Billy Graham. And now, this year, she turns 80, and she speaks in terms of the martyrdom of a long life. What is the martyrdom of a long life? What, what is the martyrdom of, of something taking much longer than you ever thought it would, yet you give yourself just as passionately to it as you would have the short run? That's really the question, because God's timing is so much different than ours. John Wesley has a very good sermon on this particular scripture. He says, you know, this is like, to me, this is like the wilderness wandering. That wilderness, those of you who know uh, um, Middle Eastern geography, know biblical geography, know that the desert that they spent 40 years in was not a big desert. They should have made it through in six months. But here they are wandering 40 years. Some of you feel like you've been in the desert a long time. Should have made it through by now. You feel like you're not you're about the 30th year, maybe your 40th year. And you're thinking, what's up with this? And he says, you know what? He says, when that happens, you can begin to lose the very gifts that God has given you. He said, you can lose, you can begin to lose your faith. You can begin to lose your love, your, your joy with those that around you. You can begin to lose your hope. You can begin to lose... Um, um, even your power over sin because you are so discouraged. Well, why? Why does God have a different timing than we? Why is he taking so long? That's the question. I mean, this says in the Bible that we are subjected to this groaning, this anticipation, not of our own will, but out of God's will. What is God thinking? Well, the very simple answer to that, write this on your mind, is this. God knows that what is to come is better than what would come now. You've got to believe that. What is to come is better than what would come now. It is more appropriate, it is more effective, because sometimes later is more effective than now. Let me tell you a little story. I read this uh, some time ago. I think it's really cute. Uh, uh, this truck driver, just a little guy, but drove one of these great big 18-wheelers. And he, and he stopped someplace in Nebraska. I can't remember the town. It had two words in it. He stopped someplace. It was an all-night diner, and he wanted something to eat. And so he went in, and, and, and he just went up to the counter, and he sat down, and he, he ordered a hamburger and french fries and a cup of coffee. And they had just brought his food. And in walk three motorcycle gang guys, leather and grease. And they were just looking for a fight. They were just spoiling for a fight. And they saw this little guy over at the counter, and they just zeroed in him. They'd walk over. And one of them just grabbed his hamburger and just started eating right in front of him. 
just daring him to do something about it. And the next one just grabbed his french fry, just started eating them right in front of his face. Third one just took his coffee, just drank it. Well, the little guy looked down, kind of shrugged his shoulders and got his check and, you know, went over to the cash register and got his money and just laid it down there and walked out, climbed in his truck. The waitress walks over to the cash register, put the money in, watches the guy drive off, comes back, and the three guys are standing there. Wasn't much of a man, was he? She said, I don't know about that, but he's not much of a truck driver. Just ran over three motorcycles in the parking lot. <laughs> Later is more effective than now. And you've got to believe that God knows that there's something better about later. There's something broader about later. Look at this next passage here, uh, verses 19 through 22 and verse 33. It says, And Jesus knew what they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this? That I said a little while, and you will not behold me, and again in a little while you will see me. By the way, this language, many people have, have interpreted this as well. Of course, he's talking about the crucifixion and uh, the resurrection. Um, but the language itself lends itself to so much more than that. It also lends itself not only to the crucifixion and resurrection, but also to his leaving and sending the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, when all of us see the works of God made manifest by the miracles of God. The very same language also lends itself to the epiphanies of God, the showing ups of God between now and the end of the world, and also lends itself to the eschatology, the end times. Same language, same images of this woman, woman bearing a child. And so, and so this fits into all of life, not just the, the three days that he was buried and then raised again. And it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is verse 20, that, to, uh, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Now, now listen to this. Whenever we're waiting, I want you to know this. It's about more than us. See, when we're waiting, we just think, well, I'm ready. That's all we think. And we don't think, but maybe others aren't. Because everything God does is about more than us. And so therefore, Jesus said, okay, you got sorrow, but the world's going to rejoice. And then he says something very important. Watch this. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Now, these, these words are very significant. He doesn't say, your sorrow will be replaced with joy. He says, your sorrow will be turned to joy. Listen, the very thing right now that is really nagging at your heart is the very thing you're going to have victory in. He's going to turn that thing into joy. That's, that's, that's God's way. He doesn't waste anything. It's not like, oh, I had that and, and that was no good, so he gave me something worth something. No, he doesn't waste anything. He turns the thing that nags us and troubles us into the very victory of our life. And then he goes in to this, to this, this analogy, this metaphor that is used all throughout Scripture, this, this, this woman who is going through labor. I mean, in, in, in Romans 8.22, it says, 
all creation groans in anticipation. In, 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 the last, in one of the last chapters in Revelation, it talks about the woman giving birth in the wilderness and so on and so forth. So this, in, in, in Isaiah, it talks about the same thing. And so it's all throughout Scripture. And Jesus brings back this metaphor. Whenever a woman is in travail, that is labor, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more. <laughs> now, I've done a little survey here. And I've had people specifically say, oh, no, I do remember. I remember. But he's not talking about a literal forgetting of the experience. He's talking about a reinterpretation of the experience. Because look at the next words. It says, for joy, for joy that a child has been born into the world. So therefore, it's a great gift of God that she would be able to see that pain through the life of her child rather than child through the life of her pain, which is why women have more than one child. So God has given her this interpretation that really um, um, overcomes uh, that experience. Let's, let's talk about that just for a moment. Because, because in, in the last verse there that we're reading, Jesus says this. says, in this world, you're going to have trials. You're going to have tribulation. But be of good courage because I have overcome the world. And so he's using this metaphor not just for women going through labor, but for all of us. For all of us. We all have this joy, uh, um, um, sorrow, joy, sorrow, joy, sorrow thing. Um, and, and, and what most of us do when we, when we, when we think we're going to wait for something that God has brought to us is that we get inactive. Somehow, somehow the whole concept of waiting has been kidnapped by passivity. And that's not what God meant at all. God meant for us to assist in that process in, in as much as we could. Now, now I, I love the whole idea of passivity. I mean, I, I, wish, I wish it were up to us just to say, okay, God, it's yours. I'll just sit around until you do something. Um, um, believe me, when, when, when we were going through our, our, our child birthing, and I say us because... My generation was the first to actually go into labor and delivery. Before my generation, they had this wonderful system where the women went into the room and had the baby, and the men were in the waiting room. Yes, that's what it was called. And we'd sit around, you know, they'd read magazines, and they'd pace up and down, and so on and so forth. And it wasn't the best, but it was sure better than being in there. And then some genius comes up. I'd like to meet this person. <laughs> some genius says, no, let's have the man be a part of labor and delivery. Now, I got to tell you, I just really question this whole idea here. Because, I, like I said, my generation is one of the first to go through it. And they put us through these little classes. And they don't prepare you at all. I mean, you do your little breathing. <laughs> you do that little thing. But, I mean, nothing prepared me for the delivery of my first child. I, I thought somebody, nobody told me that they didn't come out pink and smiling. Nobody told me that. Who neglected to tell me that? My first kid came out purple. Purple. And I thought, forget counting fingers and toes. My wife gave birth to a grape. I really did. I thought, what's wrong? I thought, I thought maybe, you know, he'll look like me. That's what all fathers think. Well, of course, he'll come out looking like me. He came out looking like Winston Churchill on a bad day. It was awful. It was, it was awful. 
But that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was labor. That was the worst part. Now, as I said, I would love to meet the genius who said, well, let's not have them. Let's have the man stand right in front of the woman when she is in absolutely the most intense, worst pain of her life, and she looks at him. <laughs> Who came up with that idea? What are we supposed to say? <laughs> Sorry. Like we can do anything. Like we're anyhow. We can't do anything. But no, she goes, and then, that wasn't bad enough. I bet it was the same genius who said, well, he's got to do something. Let's give him a job. And so they give us the most inane, irritating job in the world. I got an idea. Let's have him count the seconds of the pain. <laughs> Whenever there's a contraction, we'll have him count them all. So he gives us, ah! And the little guy's going, 15. Thirty. I'm dying. Forty-five, almost done. What's up with that? If I was that woman, I'd grab that watch and give me that watch. You know, it's just a dumb system. But even more than that, we're in there, and of course, when you're in pain, see, you're going through personality changes. Every, you're just, you go from sorrow, joy, sorrow, joy, sorrow, and you, you know, the guy doesn't know what to do. And, he, and, and even when the wife's too, too nice, to, you know what she's thinking. <laughs> ah! I'm dying. Do you know how much this hurts? I'm laying here and you're standing there. Well, I just want you to know one thing. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> We're having a baby. This is so great. Thank you for being with me. If I could just say one thing to you, I'm going to get you back. I don't know how, but someday you won't know when. I'm going to come up and you're going to know how close I feel to you. This is so wonderful. This is such a miracle. We have all of these doctors and nurses around. If I could just say something to them, it would be, give me drugs. You know, you get this. You're back and forth all over the place? Well, why? Well, it's because all of us know what it's like to be in pain, don't we? We all know, and sometimes you see the hope, and sometimes you think, oh, this will never end, and that's how you live life. And so they use this wonderful analogy that all of us have been through now, that all of us have been through, and all of us are going through. That's the point. Jesus would say to you right now, you know, some days you don't feel like this will ever end. When you're going through depression, the very characteristic of depression is, no, now you're seeing the world as it really is for the first time. But that's not true. That's not true. Jesus would say this to you. I know you can't see me right now, but I want you to listen to me. You will see me. Someday you will see me again. I want you to count, and you'll see me in this situation, in this very situation of making you miserable. Someday you're going to look back and you're going to know. You're going to know. And the reason that he says that to us is this. Because, quite frankly, we've been 
sold a bill of goods on how long this life lasts. We, it isn't a da- and somebody, somebody has said, you know, life isn't a hundred yard dash, it's a marathon. I want to give you probably a more realistic picture than that. Life is not a marathon either. Do you know what it takes to run a marathon? How many of us could run a marathon? Like one in here, maybe? I don't know. It isn't even a long, sustained effort. Life is more like a 10,000-mile journey. And you go to sleep at night, and you get up in the morning, and guess what? You've got to decide to do it again. And then you get interrupted, and you've got to decide to do it again. And then you have a rest, and you've got to decide to do it again. And then you get separated, and you've got to decide to do it again. And then what you want doesn't come, and you've got to decide to do it again. And again, and again, and again, and again. And that's what Jesus was saying. In a little while, you won't see me longer. And then you'll see me again. And then in a little while, you won't. And then you do again. And these saying, there's a pattern here. And so for some of you right now that are starting to feel that well-known characteristic of depression that says, you know, God's not out there. I want you to hear me. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And what you're seeing right now really isn't truly the world as it is. You don't see the world as it is until you see God. And if you can't see him right now, he's on his way. But he's on his way in perfect timing. And the events of your life are on their way in perfect timing. Now, again, the point is, what do you do till they come? Well, you don't sit and wait. See, when you sit and wait, what you're doing is giving your life over to your circumstances. God never meant for you to give your life over to your circumstances. He says there are things you can do in the meantime. If you really believe I'm going to bring to you what I've promised to bring to you, the best, what you don't have right now, then I want you to begin to prepare for it. Look at these last two verses, what they say to us. In verse 22 and 23, it says this. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice No one takes your joy away from you. You remember that. And in that day you will ask me no question. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Now read that verse 24 with me too. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Now, let me just tell you something very important about those last three verses. First of all, in the original language, there are two different words for ask. The first word is the asking of a question, the asking of intellectual content. He says, in that day, you will ask me no more. You're not going to ask me any intellectual questions anymore. The reason that he says that is because every time we're in pain, we go to God and we want to know why. And they're all, you know, just tell me why. Tell me what you're doing here. Tell me why I got this and she has that and they don't have this and so Just tell me why. Now, I don't know how many of you get those questions answered, but I would bet not many of you. Why? Because we weren't meant to walk by sight, but by faith. Faith is doing something that you believe God wants you to do when you don't know exactly why. You don't have the whole picture. And you do it anyhow because you know that's the leading of the Lord. Now, he says someday, someday, 
you won't have any of those questions. All of those questions will be answered. You'll look back and go, ah, that was a perfect plan. But you don't see that right now. Then the second word ask is this. It's not the word ask for questions. It's the word for petitions. And it says this. In essence, until then, you have something to do here. You can't bring what only God can bring, but you can do a lot in the meantime. You can help, and your help is more important than you believe it is. Not unlike a husband's in the labor room. Your help is more important than you believe it is. And what you can do, I want you to ask me to do. I want you to ask me to provide. I want you to ask me uh, to give you uh, the power to prepare for what I am bringing to you. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. And what that means is that when I bring to you the future, when I bring to you what you've been waiting for, you're already prepared for it and you're going, ah, now it's perfect. So the point here is I want all of you who came in this morning subject to futility to have hope. I want you to understand that what you see and the things that you're waiting for are not the whole picture. I was reading a book this week. I'll, I'll close with this. I was reading a book this week called Harnessing Complexity. It's a book about uh, systems of management that, um, that are specifically designed to manage the unknown. And one of the things that, that one of the illustrations that, that this guy had was, and this is a true story, um, this... this <coughs> new inductee into the army, this new draftee had come in. And before he came into the army, he was a systems analyst, uh, an operations uh, manager, actually. And, uh, and so one of the first days he's in the army, he's standing in the mess hall, and they're, they're all waiting to wash their dishes. So, you know, they're going to wash the dishes themselves, and, and they've got two tubs for washing and two tubs for rinsing. And, and he's standing in this long line. And he, he's, he's looking at that system. He said, mm, this isn't right. And so he goes up to the sergeant. And he says, you know what? Says I, systems analyst. And, and he said, I know that it takes people a lot, more, uh, a lot longer to wash than it takes them to rinse. So really, this would be much better. The line would move much faster if you have three tubs for washing and one tub for rinsing. Sergeant looks at him and says, son, I want to tell you something. We have those there for a design, for a purpose. You see, I can't run you guys all day long, but I can stand you longer than you sit. And my purpose isn't to get you to go sit someplace. There are two very valuable things you're going to have to learn in the Army. One is to stand when you feel like sitting. And the other is to wait until the time is right. The system stays the same because we're not building dishwashers, we're building soldiers. I want you to know the same thing is true for your life. God's not building somebody who can do a little detail. He's building somebody who can win a war. You need to learn how to stand. You need to learn how to wait. And you need to do whatever comes before you when it's your time. Pray with me.